1 Daniel. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in, in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hanai, Mishael, and Azariah, the tribe of Judah, and the chief of eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Betshehazah, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel a favour and compassion in the sight of the chiefs of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should you see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Ariziah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and flatter in flesh, in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found to be like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdoms. And Daniel was there until the first year of the king Cyrus. Thank you, Danny. Please be seated. Well, as you can see, the title of today's sermon is Faithfulness in a Foreign Fiefdom. About an hour and a half ago, it was Faithfulness in a Foreign Kingdom. And then Scott said, you should, you should put fiefdom in there because it's, you know, alliteration. And I was like, that's a brilliant idea. So kids, can anybody tell me what a fiefdom is? We've only got a few kids here this morning, got a few in isolation. Anyone? Nope. Well, any adults? Can any adults tell us what a fiefdom is? I think there's one over here. Taught it this week. There you go. Yeah, the, that's right. So, king in the medieval times, a, 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 basically, it's like a little subset of a kingdom, right? It's like a little kingdom within a kingdom. 
And so when I use the term fiefdom, I'm referring to this kingdom, this little world that we are living, this subset, the, the world that we live, the life that we have here on earth in this time is a subset of God's bigger kingdom. That is the fiefdom that we are living in this morning or today and in our lives. And so my question for us today is, as we approach the book of Daniel, how do we live faithfully in a world that opposes God? This fiefdom opposes Him. How do we live in that world? And how do we live in a world that perhaps even as we look around seems to have defeated Him? Yeah, that was certainly the question for Daniel and his friends. You see, unlike them, pardon me, unlike them, we today don't find ourselves as exiles in a, in a kingdom that has defeated our nation. We are not in that exact situation. Though, being the small country that we are, I mean, that's not exactly a crazy possibility that that could happen to us. But you see, even, even without that reality, even without the reality that we, we are living in that kind of situation, nonetheless, we are still exiles, aren't we? As we saw last week, as Peter describes the faithful, we are exiles in this world and in this life. 1 Peter 1.1 is an example of that. Give me one second while I bring that up. Thank you, Ross. And in that sense, regardless of the, the earthly kingdom that we find ourselves in, we will always be exiles. We will always be living in earthly kingdoms and societies that at some level oppose God. And if you talk to many Christians today, the general consensus is that our culture, in a sense, has defeated God. How do we remain faithful in such a world? That is what we're going to be exploring in Daniel chapter 1 this morning. And we'll do so through three points. Now, given the length of this chapter, I won't be working through it verse by verse, so keep your Bibles open and follow along as we go. Let's begin at point one. God presides, provides, and guides. God presides, provides, and guides. He presides over all of creation and over all of history. He provides for His people and He guides His people. We see all of these three things in our story this morning. And this point, even though I'm going to introduce it here and talk about it, it actually continues on throughout the next two points. And so keep an ear out for them as we go through. It's amazing how often in the Bible, things look pretty bleak at first. And here in Daniel, it happens right from the very first verse, from the very first sentence of the book. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The dreaded besieging of Jerusalem and the subsequent exile, which was God's judgment 
on the Israelites for failing to keep his covenant, here it is. It finally arrives. And here is the result. Now, this, this besieging and the exile of the people of Israel happened in three waves, main waves, of which this was the first. In 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar defeated Jerusalem and he took Jehoiakim along with a bunch of other Israelites to the capital, including Daniel and his friends. And they did so with the intention of re-educating them in Babylonian ways so that they could go back to Jerusalem, back to their people and lead them. The, the idea was that these people that they spent three years re-educating could go back and basically be the puppets of the puppet master, the Babylonian Empire. And so this situation right from the beginning in verse 1 is looking bleak. And actually, it only gets more bleak from here. When Jehoiakim uh, goes back, rebels, and then it eventually ends in the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple in 586 BC. You can read more about that in 2 Chronicles 36. But as is so often the case in God's story, so often in Scripture, even though the first verse looks bleak, a following verse shows how there is hope. And in Daniel, it comes in the very next verse. Here is Daniel talking about how the king of Judah, the one who sits on David's throne, the one who is supposed to be a representative for the Lord. The, the Lord is the very one who hands him, Jerusalem's king, over to the king of Babylon. It is the Lord's doing. And he does so along with the very vessels that have come from his own house. Now, this, this may not seem like a, a big deal, but you need to remember that the house of God, also known as the temple, was the very center and symbol of the worship of the Lord in Israel. It's the very thing that the false prophets in Jeremiah tried to claim would protect the people of Israel when Jeremiah was trying to warn them of the coming judgment. As they said, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We are indestructible because we have the temple. And you notice the play on words in these first couple of verses in Daniel. The verses from the house of God are now being brought to the house of Nebuchadnezzar's God. The false God is the one who is now receiving the vessels from the true God. Now this is a sign of the Lord's defeat, if there ever was one. This is basically like a, a trophies for Nebuchadnezzar's God, bringing them into his house, you know? Proof that the God Marduk is more powerful than the God Yahweh. We're going to take these straight to Marduk's pool room. And not only is, is that an obvious statement, I mean, we read that now and we think, oh yeah, of course. But actually, we see this practice mentioned in other ancient texts, like the Cyrus Cylinder, which was created in 539 B.C., and that this was the reason why they do it. It's basically a statement which says, if your God's things end up in our God's house, then clearly our God is greater, is stronger, is higher than yours. And to highlight even more the fact that the Lord has seemingly been defeated by His enemies, Daniel here describes 
uh, he uses the old name for Babylonia, Shinar. Now, I like that the ESV actually translates this as Shinar and keeps the old name rather than using the new name of Babylonia, which some other translations do. Because Daniel here is using the term Shinar, the, the name Shinar, to point to the fact that they are now in the very center of a land that opposes God. How do we know this? Well, Shinar is the name of the place where the first people of the earth began to build the Tower of Babel in opposition to God. You can read that in Genesis 11. After God flooded the earth and made a covenant with Noah and all of his offspring, one of the first things that fallen humanity does in response is oppose God and his covenant. Instead of filling the earth and spreading to the four corners of the earth and subduing it as they were told to do in the Noahic covenant, Instead, they stay in one place and they build a tower in dedication to their greatness. And yet, in spite of what seems to be the Lord's defeat, Daniel reminds us that it was the Lord Himself, the Lord Himself who delivered the king of Judah and the vessels from His house to Nebuchadnezzar's. And what does this show us? It shows us that the Lord is the true King of Kings. We talked about this last week. Not only is He the King of of His people, but He is also the Creator of all people, of all of creation. And He is the King over all. And so the King of Babylon and His false gods do not exercise their will over the Lord's. They've only won because the Lord Himself made it happen. So this isn't a clash of the titans or a battle of the gods. No, this is a description of the author and his story. That's the point of the first word in this first point. When I say that God presides... I mean that there is nothing in the course of human or all of the universe's history that has happened outside of His will. And this is something that would have been of great comfort to the original hearers of the book of Daniel. As Israelites in exile tried to make sense of how their supposed creator of everything, God, somehow managed to be defeated by a foreign king... And his false God, in the midst of of feeling like that must be the case, Daniel reminds them of the fact that not for a second has the Lord been overpowered. I can imagine that some of them would have still doubted that this was true. Perhaps you can imagine too that some of them would have looked around at the, at the carnage, looked around at the defeat of their nation, the exiling of their king and some of their friends, the taking of the vessels of the house of God. And surely they must have thought to themselves, look, I hear what you're saying, but it surely cannot be true. Do you ever feel this way? 
Do you ever feel sometimes like perhaps God has been defeated? What a timely word, what a timely truth this is for us. I mean, it's always timely because it's the Word of God. But as I mentioned, our own nation is becoming increasingly opposed to God. And not only that, but the relative peace that we have enjoyed in our world over the last few decades is becoming increasingly unstable. If you've been watching the news, the events of the last few days in Russia and Ukraine once again force us to think about where God is in the midst of such turmoil. Now, it is not only having a direct impact, sorry, is not having a direct impact on us just yet. But perhaps you're one of the people, one of the many people who are worried that this conflict could spiral into another world war. It is certainly being called the biggest attack on another nation since World War II. How do such tensions, how do such bleak possibilities make you think about God? How do they make you think about whether He really does preside over all things, preside over all nations, including Russia, Ukraine, the U.S.? Have you ever considered how you would respond if you actually were in a position similar to Daniel's? An exile of a conquering nation. You see, for many, it's just too much. The thought of such devastation causes people to look around at the defeat, to look around at the destruction and say... Surely God has lost. As I heard one atheist commentator say, well, if God is ruler over all, he's doing a pretty bad job of it. Even if you have learned and reminded yourself of the truth in times of peace, and you are convinced of it, it's going to be hard enough already, having done that, to remain anchored in truth in the face of so much suffering and so much carnage. I read a piece just a couple of days ago by a pastor and a professor of a seminary in Kiev, in Ukraine. Of course, they are terrified of the things that are unfolding in their nation. This nation, which he and his wife and kids came to serve six years ago. And yet they've decided to stay They continue to serve their church, to continue to serve their local community, and they have seen the blessings of that even over the last few days. And they still might flee if the situation gets worse. But these are the words of brothers and sisters who know the truth of God's sovereignty, even when it looks like He has lost. He says, We have decided to stay both as a family and as a church. When this is over, the citizens of Kiev will remember how Christians have responded in their time of need. This was the truth that Daniel and his friends knew. God presides over His creation. He presides over His story. 
and over his people. How can God's people continue to live faithfully in a world that opposes them? Well, they remember this truth. And they remember that he also provides for them and he guides them. God presides, provides, and guides. As I mentioned before, we'll see both of these points continue to play out. So keep those words in your mind as we move to point two. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to be a Daniel? The question mark? Kids, have any of you heard the phrase, dare to be a Daniel? Heard that one? Maybe, maybe no? I'm getting a few shaking heads and a few munching on apples. Well, I'm not sure about you, but if you've been in Christian circles for anything more than a few minutes, then you've probably heard the phrase, dare to be a Daniel. And if you've been in Reformed circles for anything more than a few minutes, then you've probably heard at least one person poo-poo the whole idea of daring to be a Daniel. Because they say that, you know, it is totally void of the gospel. So, that begs the question, doesn't it? Is it okay to dare to be a Daniel? Well, let's answer that by looking at what Daniel actually did. We see in verse 3 that Ashpenaz, Nebuchadnezzar's chief eunuch, is given the task of finding youths out of the royal family and the nobility in Israel who are good-looking, smart, and carry themselves well. And the purpose of finding such youths was so that they could be re-educated. And as I mentioned earlier, to be redeployed as Babylonian leaders back in their native province. I suppose you'd probably call that a fiefdom, going back there. You see, when, when you have locals representing the ruling empire, uh, the people are much less likely to rebel or try and create a fuss. It feels less like they're actually being oppressed. But make no mistake, the things which these young Israelites were being forced to do were part of a bigger plan to change their identity. Being taught Babylonian literature and language included not just their greatest authors, but probably their sorcery, their astrology, their beliefs, their religion as well. One of the reasons we know this is because this is the, the term Chaldeans not only refers to a people group in Babylon, but it is also a term used to refer to astronomers or wise men. We see this throughout the book of Daniel like in the next chapter, in verse 2. The point is, they wanted to turn these good Hebrew boys into good Babylonian boys. And you see that most clearly in the changing of their names. Daniel, meaning God is my judge, Hananiah, meaning Yahweh is gracious, Mishael, which means who is what God is, Azariah, meaning Yahweh is a helper, changing them to Belteshazzar, O lady, wife of the god Bel, protect the king, 
Shadrach, I am very fearful of God or command of Aku, the moon god. Meshach, meaning I am of little account or who is like Aku. Abednego, meaning servant of the shining one or Nebo. They had their names changed and they were taught Chaldean ways. These are two ways that the Babylonians sought to change these Hebrew boys. And they also tried to do it one other way. But that's where Daniel drew the line. He drew the line at food. You know what they say, the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. So obviously in this case, that's also why Daniel said he would draw the line. Let's read verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. That word defile there should make your ears prick up. It's helpful for us in English because we generally use the term defile in a religious or in a sacred sense. And that is most likely what's going on here. Isn't it so interesting that of all the things that they were being forced to do in these re-education camps, this is the hill that Daniel chooses to die on? I mean, having your name changed, I would have thought, is a pretty big deal, especially when it's being changed from one that is faithful to the Lord, whom you worship, to one that represents a false god. Kids, can you imagine if, if uh, the government came in and said, uh, we're going to change your names, even though your children, your parents named you this, and they thought, you know, really hard about it, and there's, there's, you know, relationship to their faith in it, and they said, no, we're going to give you completely different names that have nothing to do with what your parents have said and with, with the beliefs that they hold. How would that make you feel? Do you think? We're a quiet one today. Not great, I'm sure. And you know what, given verse 11 in chapter 1, it may be that Daniel and his mates, they didn't actually really cave on this point, but they politely allowed the Babylonians to keep calling them their Babylonian names. But they just said, okay, you can call us that, but we know what our names are. And it could very well be that learning the beliefs of other nations did not actually pose a problem to Daniel and to his friends. In some ways, that can actually be a good thing that we as Christians can learn from. It is good to know the beliefs of the people around us. The Apostle Peter encourages us to have a good defense for the hope that we have. And one of the ways that we can do that is to engage with the wisdom and the ways of the world that we live in and show why Christianity stands tall among them. So, why the food thing? Well, a few reasons have been suggested. One, maybe it was for health reasons. It was popular a little while back. I don't know, maybe it is now, perhaps you've heard of it. Uh, for Christians to do what they called a Daniel fast. Anyone ever heard of that? Anyone tried it? 
No. I think it was really just an excuse to try and eat healthily and try and lose some weight and make it sound like it was being really spiritual. At the same time, because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm being like Daniel. I think this is extremely unlikely that it's the reason, given that Daniel most likely knew that this could land him in serious trouble. And nowhere in Scripture do we see uh, that, you know, eating healthily is a hill to die on. Another explanation would be that the Israelites had kosher food laws. They had to eat, uh, according to Leviticus and other commands, in the Pentateuch, uh, food prepared in a certain way. And so the way that the Babylonians were serving it up to them would have ruled out the food for them. But given that Daniel mentions wine specifically in this verse, and that uh, was only, wine was only off-limits to Nazarites, it seems like perhaps there might be more going on here. Another explanation is that uh, perhaps they didn't want to eat food offered to idols, something that Paul would pick up on later in his letter to the Corinthians. But the problem with this explanation is that the vegetables that they would have ended up eating uh, most likely would also have been the same food offered to idols, they would have been in the same boat. And so one of the, the other issues with both of these explanations is that it seems possible that Daniel actually eventually didn't even have a problem with eating the king's food. We read about it in Daniel 10 verse 3, that he abstained from eating these things, which means that, well, he, he probably was eating them by that stage in his life. So whatever the specific reason... And I think it's likely that these elements, the, the three that I just mentioned, except perhaps the health one, probably had a role to play in the decision-making process for Daniel. It's important to note that what the Israelites ate was a significant part of their identity in God. Therefore, for them to just give up what they ate, something which was a sign of being God's people and effectively conceding that they were now Babylonians who worshipped God, I think that is the reason why Daniel drew the line. And so here we see how God guides, how He guided Daniel, how He guided His friends. Now, it's totally possible that God clearly spoke to Daniel like he had done with other prophets before him. We saw some of that with Elijah when we preached through Kings, and you can read about that many times with different prophets in the Old Testament. And given what God does actually reveal to Daniel later on in the book, it's certainly not hard to believe that that's how God guided him in this. And it's also totally possible that Daniel had simply been well taught by faithful parents about what it means to be faithful to the Lord. Well, either way, God guided Daniel in faithful obedience, and that meant choosing to die on this hill. And I reckon the king of Babylon probably knew that this was at stake. It could very well be that this could have cost Daniel his life. And were it not for the fact that the Lord presided over the whole thing and provided him with favor and compassion then that very well could have been the outcome. You see, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. How is it 
that the Lord granted him favour and compassion. What did that look like? In verse 10, the chief eunuch makes it clear that his life would be in danger if he did what Daniel requested. Perhaps compassion was shown on Daniel in the fact that he didn't just report him straight away and get him killed right and then, right then and there for making such a request. Or perhaps it was compassion shown through him turning a blind eye to what one of his middle managers decided to do for Daniel and his mates. You notice how Daniel went to the top, didn't get what he needed, so he went to the next guy down, who was happy to help him. We see that in verse 11. He says, and the, the steward allowed him to be tested for 10 days. And so they were given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Now, for the record, I don't think the science has changed on food and what it does to your body since the time of Daniel. I don't think the difference between the vegetables of 6th century Babylonians and the vegetables of modern-day Australians would have a vastly different effect on our bodies in comparison to meat and wine. Which is why Daniel's request and the eventual result, well, they're actually not what you expect. I don't know about you, but when, whenever I, uh, I read this, it was only as I was studying it that I realized that there was, there was always something in the back of my mind thinking, but that shouldn't happen, right? But, but I guess it just does. And I never really gave it any more thought. I, I mean, after all, think about it. People do the Daniel fast these days. They don't do it to gain weight. They do it to lose weight. If you take out all of these rich sources of protein and fat and sugar that you find in meat and wine and all of these other things, then you're going to end up less fat if you're just eating vegetables and water. And not to mention the fact that 10 days, that's not exactly a huge amount of time to see big changes in your body. No, what we see in verse 15 is the result yet again, of the hand of God. Daniel doesn't mention it explicitly, but I think that in following the Lord in this and planting a flag of being obedient to Him here, God provided. Brothers and sisters, do you trust that God will provide even when the immediate results could be disastrous. I mentioned the pastor in Kiev before. You can bet that their belief in God's provision is being tested. But even though we are not in that same kind of social upheaval, the same kind that our brothers and sisters in Eastern Europe are experiencing right now, we are still exiles living east of Eden, living in China in a world opposed to God. As we talked about last week, we are citizens of God's kingdom that are passing through earthly kingdoms, earthly fiefdoms. And we are strangers here. Hebrews 11.13 gives us another example of this of how the Bible talks about our citizenship being in heaven. 
Are you prepared to be obedient to God even if the world opposes you? Are you prepared to reap the consequences of remaining faithful to God in a world that opposes Him? Maybe you are. And maybe you are ready to die on every hill. If it were you, you would have talked to the chief eunuch about all of these things. Nope, not changing my name. Nope, I'm not learning the magical arts of the Chaldeans. Nope, not eating that food. Perhaps that's you. Could there be more wisdom in thinking about which hills are the right ones to die for? die on. Sometimes we can be quick to jump onto Christian bandwagons that others are jumping onto. Moral outrage, after all, is the order of the day. So, brothers and sisters, those of you who are more likely to move in that direction, who are, who are ready to stand defiant against the kingdoms of this world, let me encourage you to slow down and assess which hills are the ones to die on. Or perhaps you're not ready to die on any hills. As a matter of fact, you quite like the hill. The grass is green, the view is great, the food here is excellent. Why do I want to die here? I don't want to die on this hill, I love it. If that is you, brothers and sisters... It is absolutely essential to know that a life of following Christ will, at some point or another, if it hasn't already, put you in opposition to the world. That world, this kingdom which will try and pressure you and mold you into its anti-God ways. And yes, I understand that it is difficult to know what the right hill to die on is. And at our members meeting this afternoon, I'm sure we will be discussing that in relation to COVID and government orders. But those questions are an application of a truth that must be true for all who follow Christ. When you choose, when you are faced with the choice of copping flack for Jesus or compromising faith, then the latter is never an option. We cop flack every day. And before you are put in that position where the pressure is immense, before you are in that situation where you have very powerful people trying to force you to do things that you know are disobedient to the Lord, you must know that He presides, provides, and guides. Our current cultural moment here in the West is starting to increase the pressure on us as Christians. I watched, uh, because I do, Vladimir Putin's address to his nation this week. And in it, he gave a brief, subtle dig at the Western values that 
he called contrary to human nature, which the West has tried to aggressively impose on them and their traditional values. To be honest, I agree with him on that point, as I'm sure many Christians would. Life in the West is becoming increasingly challenging as our society seeks to re-educate those who disagree with what would now be the majority view on a whole range of things. It's not getting easier for a Christian in Australia to be faithful to God. Now, this doesn't mean we resign ourselves to this fact and we give up on working towards a more God-honoring society where we can live peaceful and quiet lives. I'm not suggesting we, we, we give up that, that um, effort. But it is, nonetheless, a trend that does not seem like it is slowing down at this point. And if the march of opposition to God in our society continues, if it keeps going... Brothers and sisters, are you prepared? Are you prepared to face the consequences of obedience to God in a world that opposes Him today? Are you prepared to perhaps lose your job when your employer crosses a line that you cannot cross? Are you prepared to do that when it is the best job that you've ever had and there is no way that you would ever have anything comparable to it were you to lose it? Would you be prepared to walk away from financial stability and embrace financial hardship for the sake of obedience to God? And just in case you think to yourself, well, that's easy for you to say, JR. You're a pastor and you don't have the same pressure that I experience in the workplace. You don't have an employer who is telling you to to be anti-God. If I did, that would be very concerning. You don't have a boss telling you to do godless things. Well, while that is true, it's important to remember that My pay comes from you. So for me to be encouraging you to potentially leave your job in obedience to God means decreasing our church's income and therefore my pay, especially with our church at the size that it currently is. It is not without risk or cost to me either to exhort you in this way. But I, just as you, serve a higher king. One who is not lord of a fiefdom. And on top of that, who knows how long it will actually be that I would be able to speak so freely about such things in public. Now, please don't hear me say that I think you should now die on every hill and make yourself as unemployable as you can in society. That is not what I'm saying, not what I'm suggesting. Wisdom is required. Biblical depth and study is required. Seeking wise counsel from brothers and sisters is required. 
But at the end of the day, we must be prepared to follow the Lord and to trust that He presides, He provides, and He guides in all circumstances, in all situations, even if we find ourselves in incredible hardship. Especially, especially when this fiefdom is trying to force us to disobey Him. And that's exactly what these four youths did, and God provided. He gave them learning and skill and wisdom, and He gave Daniel the ability to interpret and understand visions and dreams. And He gave that to them to such a degree that they stood out when they stood before the king. Look at verse 19. The king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And even more amazing is verse 20. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all kingdoms. Sorry, his kingdom, 10 times better. That number indicates a complete eclipsing and a complete overwhelming of the competition. You can't really get more hyperbolic than this. 10 times better in all the magicians and all the kingdom. I think this is another example of something that is true still today. That is, the wisdom that comes from the Lord is ten times better than the wisdom that comes from everywhere else. And this is not just a subjective kind of better. God's wisdom is anchored in truth. And that is why it is better. But the observation here shows just how much better God's wisdom is when compared to all other pretenders. And this ought to still be true for us as Christians today. Again, like we looked at last week, followers of Christ should have lives that speak volumes to the watching world. You see, I I say that because wisdom is not just intellectual knowledge. It It is applied life of the truth and wisdom of God. Of course, it's not always going to be the case that we will be received favorably by the world. Shinar openly opposes and rejects God. But Scripture makes clear that our lives ought to be so honorable that even though they may not like what we say or we believe, there is something about our lives that is compelling. Peter, again, in 1 Peter 2. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. A classic example of this is the very thing that Daniel demonstrated in this passage. When Christians remain firm in their obedience to God, even in the face of opposition and possible death, and do so in such a way that is humble and trusting in God's sovereignty, that speaks volumes to the watching world. And there's certainly no shortage of examples of Christians doing this throughout history. 
like Telemachus, the 4th century monk who, according to Fox's Book of Martyrs, ran into a gladiator battle to try and stop them from killing each other. He ended up himself being killed as the crowd called for his death. But Telemachus' willingness to stand firm on his faith had such an effect, such an indelible imprint on the minds of the crowd that soon after gladiator battles ceased. Like Martin Luther King Jr. in the 20th century, whose peaceful protests led to a nation recognizing the image of God in African Americans. And so many more in between. Examples that you will find in the pages of public history today and also examples that now only God knows about. Christians remaining faithful and obedient to God in a world that opposes Him. So is it right to dare to be a Daniel? Actually, I think it is. In his example in chapter 1 that we have just seen and in other parts of this book, where he proves to be a great example of a person of faith that we should follow. But that comes with an asterisk. I'm glad you found that funny, Ty. And that brings us to our final point. Number three, shadows of Jesus. If you were in the core class that we did on how to study the Bible last year, you might remember that we talked about how the Bible continues to build on earlier parts of it. Now, one of the reasons for this is that some of these narratives would have been passed down orally from generation to generation before they were written down. And as they were told in Israelite communities, as they reminded themselves and their children of all that God had done in the past, it's unsurprising to find that they would have noticed when themes or patterns in their history were recurring. I've noticed this in in our own family with my kids. As we have continued to teach them biblical truth, they have noticed different things at different points and said, oh yeah, that's like this and that's like this. Kids, do you guys find that? Well, I just said that my kids find that, so I hope my kids say yes. Parents of children, you guys would have found that too. That the more and more you become familiar with God's story, with the biblical text, you start to see how they connect and how they line up with one another. And so, because of this, they could, uh, these truths and, the, and this repetition and this uh, calling back to and alluding to and recognizing things that have already happened in God's story could be communicated in a way that was not explicit. You didn't have to point it out all the time. And yet, everybody knew what they were talking about. That's what you can do when you have a shared history which is memorized and taught from generation to generation. So, for example, if I started telling you a story about my friend James, who was a cook, he loved botany, and he had a favorite bay in the south, which he endeavored to get to 
in order to explore what was there. Well, I wouldn't need to tell you explicitly what I was alluding to, would I? Provided, of course, you were up to speed with key moments of Australian history. For anyone less familiar with Australian history, I'm talking about Captain James Cook, who sailed to Australia from England in 1770 on the HMAS Endeavour, landing at Botany Bay. So it is in Scripture, with the purpose of foreshadowing what God would do in years to come. I've mentioned before that this is what theologians call typology. That is, that the unfolding narrative in the Bible has types and shadows throughout it of the one who would eventually come. And there is actually more typology of between Daniel and Joseph, which we will explore in the weeks to come. But for now, I want us to focus on to whom Daniel points going forward. Daniel is the one who would be a type of Christ. And that one would be even greater than the shadow. Christ is even greater. So you see, because God presides over all of history, throughout His story, He leaves these types that point to Jesus. Daniel foreshadows the one who would leave his heavenly home. Something even grander and greater than the promised land. Jesus would willingly be exiled to this fallen world, this place of opposition to God. And he would possess and display the wisdom of God to perfection. Not just ten times more than all in the whole kingdom in the rest of the world, but infinitely more than all the wisdom of all the other wise men in all the world. Look at Luke 2, 47. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And he would live a life of perfect faithfulness in this world, a life of perfect obedience to the Lord. And that faithfulness would lead him to a cross at Calvary, where he would choose to take on the sin of all who believe. And in his death and resurrection, God would provide a way out of spiritual exile for all people through repentance and faith in him. And that way is open to all who turn from their sin and trust in him. And this morning, friend, if you have not done that, let me encourage you to consider Christ, to turn to him, the faithful one. And as Philippians 2 tells us, Jesus would receive a crown of thorns that would crown him king over all creation so that every knee should bow, so that every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Daniel was exalted by the king of Babylon, but Jesus was exalted by the king of kings. And after Jesus ascended, he sent us the Holy Spirit to guide us in all truth. 
That same spirit that fell on the early church, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, is the same spirit that lives in and guides his people today. In Jesus, God shows us supremely how he presides, how he provides, and how he guides. So when we encourage one another to dare to be a Daniel, we don't do so as chief eunuchs with a whip in hand, with a threat of death if you don't measure up. No. When we dare to be a Daniel, we look to Christ, the perfect one who is faithful and obedient when we aren't. We look to Christ who stands firm when our courage falters. We look to Christ whose spirit reminds us of his truth and his wisdom when the world pressures us to bow to its God-opposing ways. We look to the one whose righteousness has been credited to us, the one who now intercedes for us as we seek by his grace to remain faithful and obedient to him as exiles and strangers in the world. Brothers and sisters, God provides for and guides his people as he presides over their lives. Will you remain faithful to him in a foreign fiefdom? Let's pray. Father, we praise you and honor you because you are the one, the author who is above all who has written and continues to write history. Lord, as we meditate on your word in Daniel, how you worked in his life and in the life of his friends to display your glory and lordship, how you guided them in faithful obedience. Lord, may we see in them great examples And ultimately, may we see one who points to Christ, the faithful one, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, to whom we bow. We pray this in his name. Amen.